Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's the 11th of July. Have you seen the videos of the extreme flooding in the northeastern United States? Um, The threat of life-threatening conditions today over much of the northeast as all of that water that has fallen fallen in the last couple of days literally now flows downhill. So prayers are rising as rain continues to fall in some places and millions of people in the northeastern United States are Um, under all kinds of um, severe warnings. And I will confess to you that the third verse of my hope is built on nothing less. uh, The third verse of that always comes to mind when I see whelming floods. And this is certainly a physical whelming flood. But his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay. Let's be uh, praying for... um, God's grace today upon the people in New England. If you're listening right now and you're uh, in upstate New York, you're in Vermont, you're in any of the uh, flood-affected areas, just know your brothers and sisters across the country are praying for you. We have you in view. Um, we, we, we confess we cannot imagine except by our own experiences in the past of whelming floods. And so we are, um, we're going to encourage you and as people across the country have already said, you know, we're, we're going to be there for you long term. Um, we know that once the waters recede, the real work begins. And so be safe today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio. Our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Ephesians chapter 4. Now, anytime a verse begins with the word therefore, we stop and ask ourselves, what's the therefore therefore? So, you know, I know that I say it every time we have a verse that begins with the word therefore. And every time we read something out of one of the letters of Paul, we come across the word therefore with some frequency because Paul likes to use that as a linguistic transition to let you know, hey, everything I've set up to now, super duper important and has a consequence. And here's the consequence of everything that I've set up until now. And so you need to read Ephesians 1 through 3 in order to understand what the therefore is therefore at the beginning of chapter 4. But here we go. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of Paul's letter to the Christians at Ephesus. We call it Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, I, that would be Paul, a prisoner for serving the Lord. So he's letting you know this is a, this is a prison epistle in case, in case you missed that uh, to this point. That's the context out of which Paul is writing. Um, and he, as a prisoner for serving the Lord, is now begging you. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. What is a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called in Christ Jesus? First of all, that is your calling. You're called to Christ. You're called by Christ. You're called in Christ. Um, And you're called to be on commission with Christ. It is the great commission of making other disciples. 
Um, are you leading a life worthy of that calling? That's what, that's what this verse is about. We got one Christian named Paul begging other Christians to lead a life worthy of our calling. You have been called by God, Paul says. Here's what a worthy life look, look a worthy life looks like, at least in part, according to Paul. Always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. So today let's take this counsel from the Lord um, through the hand of the apostle Paul. Let's be humble, gentle, let's be patient with each other. I certainly have faults. Thank you for not taking offense. That would be, that would be the um, patience and allowing for the faults of others. That's, you know, take no offense. So thank you for allowing for my faults today. I, um, I will seek in Christ to make allowance for your faults as well. Why? Because I love you. <laughs> because I love you. All right. Um, yesterday's verse about integrity leapt to mind when um, when I read that the president of the United States, um, although in public presents himself as one thing, is apparently prone to yelling behind the scenes, behind closed doors. So if you're reading the headline news today, you're going to see that um, covered in all kinds of places. And in in one sentence in the article uh, at Axios, there are there are so many words that had to be um, bleeped out in print that there are more asterisks in the sentence than there are letters. Yeah, your imagination doesn't have to go very far um, to know that that means that there are words um, spoken behind the scenes by the current president of the United States um, to his staffers that uh, are so explicit that they can't even be printed, um, which is saying something. So we're going to continue to talk about integrity. We're going to continue to seek to be people who live with integrity before the Lord and before others and to be people of integrity, fully integrated uh, Christian disciples. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is going to join us next. We are going to survey some of the headline news of the day, bring the mind of Christ to bear. In Iowa, the date is set. It's January the 15th. I mean, not today, but that's that's the day we're going to talk about. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. All right, Iowa, the date is set, January the 15th. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith, what is going to happen in Iowa on January the 15th? Uh, we'll have the very first Republican uh, presidential contest, uh, the Iowa caucus. So a little more than six months from now, Carmen, we will actually be voting in parts of the country about who our presidential nominees are. So um, I think for some people, it feels like, wow, there's just an awful lot of people already in the race and there's a lot going on now. If you live in Iowa um, or New Hampshire, like you're you're actually busy because these people are coming to visit. They're making their way around your state. If you live anywhere else, it's like the middle of the summer. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, Iowa and New Hampshire have that sort of exalted place in our political calendar uh, just by tradition. Uh, and the Republicans are sticking to that tradition, although, as you've probably heard and some of your listeners have heard, 
the Democrats are trying to buck that tradition a little bit. I mean, they're hoping to start with South Carolina um, and not Iowa, uh, primarily because Joe Biden is so strong in South Carolina uh, that he'll do very, very well there, where he could easily lose potentially a caucus in Iowa. And so, uh, but for Republicans, it'll be Iowa. And yet, like you said, they're engaged. They've been engaged for a while in Iowa, New Hampshire, and some of the early states. Uh, Americans in general probably won't even start to pay close attention to this contest until maybe December. Uh, and that's a pretty small fraction. Uh, but really, once we start to cast some votes in January, February, then things will start to pick up a little bit. Okay, so um, some folks might be a little bit surprised that uh, the Democrats are even talking about having a primary. Um, how unusual is it for a sitting president to be primaried? Uh, it like, isn't... Other, like other people are running. That's what that sure. means, right? Like, you know, I mean, he's I mean, there's at least a Kennedy running. Yeah, there's at least a Kennedy running. Uh, it's not unusual. It's not terribly unusual for a sitting president to be challenged in some particular kind of way. Um, generally, the challenges don't amount to a whole lot. And so maybe token, a token mm. challenger, from a wing of the party. Uh, who just simply says, well, I'm here to challenge the president, and really nothing ever comes of it. Occasionally, though, we do get a significant challenge. Um, you know, like Jimmy Carter was challenged by Teddy Kennedy in 1980, uh, Democratic presidential primary. Uh, George Bush was challenged by Pat Buchanan mm, uh, in mm-hmm. 1992. And so those showed weak presidents who went on to lose their reelection campaigns. Uh, those are significant challenges. And so you know, right now, uh, like you said, uh, Bobby Kennedy, Robert Kennedy Jr. is 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 challenging President Biden, but it's not clear to me that they'll even debate or that they'll even really amount to much of a, a typical challenge at all. Okay, this is a little cheeky, but I'm going to say it. So I feel like if you wanted to challenge President Biden and you were a Democrat and you wanted to run, you should go legally change your name to not Biden because that not Biden person has a lot of support. Uh, there is no question about it. And there, you know, these are not whispers anymore. Um, no, like the, unnamed, the, the, the yeah. quote unquote unnamed, not Biden has 8% of the national support right now among Democrats. Yeah, uh, there's their publications, their op-eds being written, encouraging the president to step aside. Um, and I think most of them are, you know, obviously they're partisan oriented. They want the Democrats to be as strong as possible. And so they'd prefer a different kind of candidate. But I think some of them are interested in Joe Biden himself. I mean, his health yeah. clearly is, is an issue. Um, and I think people are concerned about his uh, ability to lead the country, potentially, uh, if he were to win re-election. And so yeah, I think, what did I see? He's He would be 86 years old at the end of his second term. Is that correct, I believe? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and he's aged even in the last few years as president. It's hard for me to imagine him doing very, very well over a next term of office. So there is still time for that. I mean, you know, Gavin Newsom is acting like he's running. And so I think mm-hmm. there's a chance we actually jump into the race. And so that would change the dynamics, I think, and, and provide President Biden with a significant challenger that would get on a debate stage and put real pressure on Biden. And, and, and frankly, I think he needs it. I think both parties need strong competitions uh, because uh, this is going to be an important election. Yeah. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Mark Caleb Smith in just a moment. Um, Mark is comfortable um, with male pronouns. I am comfortable with female pronouns. Could either one of us be facing a felony, however, if in the state of Michigan we um, misgendered someone by using the wrong 
pronoun. Michigan has a bill that presents both a constitutional and a cultural test. That's up next on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right. In the state of Michigan, there is a a bill being considered, and the topic is pronouns. Dr. Mark Caleb Smith is here to help us understand what's going on. Mark, what uh, are Michiganders considering? So the Democratic State House, and so it's not the full um, state assembly, but the Democratic State House has passed a bill that would make it a felony uh, to intimidate or threaten someone in a wide variety of categories, and so it isn't just gender identity, but sex, sexual orientation, age, um, but also gender identity. And key here, I think, is how they define what it means to intimidate or threaten. They use as an example as misgendering someone as a threat that could then be um, a guilty verdict could be rendered based on that kind of a threat. And the fines here, the penalties are pretty stiff, uh, up to five years in jail potentially uh, and up to $10,000. Now, that would be the upper end, obviously, but still, uh, it is a felony and it would be a significant charge if it were brought against someone. I'm, I, I, it's like I hardly know how to even ask a follow-up question um, right. because, I mean, I don't know about you. I've been standing in a coffee line and, you know, and someone has said, sir, uh, you know, when they've asked me a question or handed me my coffee and I, I don't feel threatened. I don't feel harassed by that. If I mistakenly do that. um, uh, So this is not casual mistaken misgendering by pronouns. This is uh, somehow intentional. But, uh, you know, whether or not you perceive something to be intentional on my part right. is really right. what's up for debate. I, it's really hard for me to imagine that this is going to be very sticky in a court of law. Yeah, I think there are a lot of questions, I think, that come immediately to mind. Um, I, I think in, a, in an ideal setting, like you're describing, there would be a real difference between a mistaken identity and a threat. Uh, but a lot of that is subjective to the per, to the individual person themselves and how they perceive it. And, you know, I don't want to get overly stereotypical, uh, but there's a real generational difference at work here with how people understand language and interpret language to be threatening or even traumatizing to some extent. Um, there are people who have sort of overdefined the idea of threat to the point where any kind of controversy, any kind of disagreement, any kind of sharp uh, word at all would be considered threatening and potentially intimidating and damaging from their perspective. And so the real question here, I think, would be how do we define threat and how would it be defined within a court of law? Generally, that standard is much higher. You know, it has to be more of a direct individual threat to do harm to someone uh, before we cross that threshold. And in my mind, misgendering wouldn't really fall under that most likely. And, and there are a host of other issues here potentially as well. 
um, in this article, which I I pulled this particular coverage from Newsweek, um, there there is an individual who's talking um, here about every every threat should be illegal. Any kind of threat should be illegal. I, I don't know what kind of world that would be, um, Mark, where we, you know, we made threats of any kind illegal. I mean, I, I don't I, it, it's 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 fairly human. Yeah, it is. And again, you have to be careful how you define that word threat, right? It's not the same thing as an insult. It's not the same thing um, as a disagreement. It's not the same thing as, a, as an opinion, I think. Uh, but American, the American approach to free speech is extremely broad uh, and protective of all kinds of language, whether it's hateful, repugnant, uh, even whether it's a lie, you know, in some situations uh, is legally protected. And so, um, yeah, we have a really broad protection, but there are certainly other parts of the world that have a much more narrow understanding of free speech. And even in a place like Great Britain, the United Kingdom has a much more strict view of free speech uh, than we do. Um, but I think it's safe to say, you know, in, in the United States, um, th- that kind of language is universally protected, at least during the last century. Uh, and, I, and I would say rightfully so. It's hard for me to imagine a world uh, an American culture that functions with this kind of uh, narrow approach to language. I guess as a Christian, you know, I'm um, I'm thinking that even uh, speaking verses of Scripture out loud in a particular context, right. some people right. could be could perceive as a threat. I mean, I remember this. This goes back twenty years, but I mean, I I remember being in a meeting where a person said they felt threatened by me because I simply quoted the passage of scripture that says, I mean, you know, a millstone's going to be put around, you know, put around the neck of people that lead little children astray. Like you cannot do that. And that person like, you know, tried to file a, uh, you know, that they had been threatened by me because of my use of scripture. I, I guess, you know, I fast forward that 20 years and I'm like, I totally see how even the the plain meaning of scripture spoken in public or in a particular context could under these particular circumstances be viewed as a threat. And so I just I lift this up because I think we've arrived at the place in our public discourse where some Christians are going to go to jail for things that are are absolutely ludicrous because we are people of truth. And and I think we need to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, We've seen inklings of this in Canada and we've seen inklings of this in the United Kingdom as well where people are uh, protesting abortion regulations, for example, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and in, could be even praying or quoting scripture as part of their protest and have been arrested because of that. And so uh, yeah, I think we do have to be prepared. Uh, it seems like our culture is trending in a particular direction against our basic values, and uh, our ability to speak those values could be restricted. But, you know, I also want to say this particular law, it's hard for me to see how it would survive constitutional challenge. Um, No matter what anyone thinks of the current Supreme Court, I think all nine justices are pretty strongly committed to free speech in very broad Mm -hmm. terms. And so it's hard for me to see how it would get past it. Um, There have been similar laws, not quite this, maybe not quite this broad, but similar laws in the past the court has struck down. And so I would not be surprised at all if, if this were passed, if it was challenged and struck down pretty quickly. Um, let me just quickly touch on the topic of the family tree and how complicated a family tree can get, particularly when um, people are having children out of wedlock. So when we talk about children and grandchildren, how ought they be counted? 
Yeah, and this is a, an issue uh, when it comes to our current president of the United States. Um, Joe Biden and his uh, son Hunter um, has had a, a daughter out of wedlock um, who is a grandchild. A paternity tested has, has uh, confirmed that it is his child. And Joe Biden routinely tells people he has six grandchildren. And of course, this little girl in Arkansas would be considered number seven. Um, and Maureen Dowd, uh, and I think as you read, Maureen Dowd, a progressive columnist in the New York Times, uh, wrote an op-ed about this, taking the president to task uh, for refusing to acknowledge this this little girl. And her basic point was, you know, this little girl's done nothing wrong. You know, she's not. She has not made a decision. Uh, she has not determined who what her parentage is. Um, and the Biden should recognize her and include her as part of their family as a result. Um, and it is compelling. Uh, but as even Maureen Dowd says, this is this is a generational change. You know, Carmen, you and I both know when we were growing up, certainly a family would not have recognized someone in this situation almost ever. Um, but things have changed now. You know, we have a different approach to uh, how we count family, uh, both publicly and privately. Uh, yeah. And if you're listening right now um, and you're saying to yourself, wow, you know, in my family, there are um, there are some divided branches and there are some some children we didn't know about. I'm thinking of um, families in the church I know um, who, because of like 23andMe, because of uh, all kinds of opportunities, like they have identified that they have siblings that they did not know about, and they're now all adults. Um, and God is weaving those families back together in pretty unique ways. And so let me just go on record as saying um, family is family. And yep. if if they're in your tree, they're in your tree, and trust that God is going to use it for flourishing. And if you need to look at, at a really complicated family tree, just reread the genealogy of Jesus, um, because it's a it's a complicated family tree as well. Uh, Mark, as always, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure, um, and we we appreciate your input. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks you and your listeners. You all you all continue to have a good summer. Thank you. You too. That's Dr. Mark Caleb Smith from Cedarville University. Let's go upwards with Max Lucado. Do you um do you go to worship? Do you participate in do you participate in worship? Do you observe observe worship? Um, are you going for like a presentation or are you going for participation? Like what is church? Jeff Christofferson has been joining us over a number of conversations to talk about the challenges that we face um, in the church today and the kingdom correctives that we might um, function more as the body of Christ in community in the world today. So I want you to ask yourself, is the worship at the church that I attend, do I think of it as inspiring with strong preaching? Or do I actually recognize not only what we're there to do, but who we are as we go forth from that collective experience into the world that God so loves and to um, make a kingdom impact? So we're going to talk about the temptation toward presentationalism that we go to watch some people do something up there on a stage versus 
what it looks like to be equipped and empowered as the people of God deployed in the world to carry out his mission. Jeff Christofferson, author of Once You See, will join us again next here on Mornings with Carmen. Jeff Christofferson is back. Um, we have been talking with Jeff over the course of a number of months about his novel approach to the conversation related to the Western Church. It is Once You See Seven Temptations of the Western Church. It is a novel. I highly recommend it. Um, we started these conversations back in in May, and Jeff has been gracious to continue the conversation with us. So good morning, Jeff. Good morning, Carmen. How are you? Well, I, I am well. I am well. Are How you? are you? Good, good. I'm so is, glad to be it, with you. You're in Canada. Is it on fire where you are? <laughs> no, I think I think that's settling down. We get lots of rain. Oh, good. So I'm so glad. Yeah. yeah, praise the Lord. Amen. So we arrived today at temptation number three, but remind us uh, quickly where we've been. Um, because when we talk about the temptations that we face in the Western church, you know, I want us to I want us to be mindful of the whole list, even as we focus in today on presentationalism. Okay, yeah. So again, just these are these are things that I, I've just observed are hamstringing the church in North America primarily. And so we start off with hypotheticalism, and that's just a temptation of a hypothetical faith. Uh, just kind of yeah. Uh, there we, we went to professionalism, and uh, and that's the temptation of of excellence and uh which becomes unreproducible for the body of christ and today we're at presentation presentationalism and that is the temptation of a crowd um basically i mean jesus i was was forced or he, he had seen um crowds follow him and the crowds were looking for something and jesus didn't succumb to that temptation but i think sometimes um we do <laughs> Yeah, and when we talk about presentationalism, some of what we're saying is that we are we are focused on Sunday morning specifically, and we're focused on a particular hour. And let me be clear, as you're listening right now, neither Jeff nor I am saying that being Bible-believing is not important. Yes, being Bible-believing is important, um, but Bible-believing is not enough. We have to be Bible-living. And yes, it's wonderful to have a gifted pastoral team, but paying other people to go and do what we've all been called and commissioned in Christ to do um, is important as well. And when we talk about presentationalism, we talk about having worship services that are inspiring or preaching that is strong. None of that is bad. In fact, all of that is good. Um, But that which is good is not necessarily sufficient, like, right? So there is a calling um, for every Christian to be equipped and mobilized, not that we would just go to a place where other people are presenting, quote-unquote, worship, but that we would be actively engaged as worshipers of God um, 24-7, not one yeah. hour a week in a specific location. Does that is that at least a, a catch-up summary of where we've been yeah, and where we're I headed today? I couldn't have said it better myself. That's perfect, Carmen. I think— um, I think in, in, in the the first one we talked about um, philosophicalism speaks of belief being, um, you know, like Bible. Um, we're Bible believing church. Speaks of belief as a as a now we have or something that. But when we see in scripture that it is it is a verb. It is we don't really ever own it. We can only live it. And um, 
And so we we can only do belief. We cannot own a belief. And uh, and I think that kind of really speaks into what you just said, that um, that that we're not really a Bible believing church. We're not really really um, that when when we're just sort of taking it in, and we're not actually it's not inculcating in our spirit, and we're we're actually uh, flowing out through us. And so, it much in the same way, like. I think about this in this way. Um, you you fly and you go like I, I fly into Atlanta, and um, and you know there's probably twenty Starbucks in Atlanta Airport. Probably um, <laughs> there's six hundred and eighteen toilets. <laughs> there's there's you know there's just many many things that Atlanta Airport could be very very proud of, but nobody really cares about that because the purpose of an airport. It isn't to display its things. It is to take a passenger from where they are to where they want to be. And um and and I think sometimes we get confused in the church. We kind of we kind of think of ourselves as an airport that we're we're gathering people and we we have all the the accoutrements. We have everything that that is just like really really special and we're proud of them. And and um but it's actually it's it's actually not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is it, the purpose of of God's people is to gather them and equip them and deploy them. And um, and I'm not sure we've been doing a good job at that with our presentationalism model. Um, we have a, a listener on our text line, um, Jeff, who says, Yesterday I was reading Once You See pages 308 to 310 and emotions welled up and tears began to flow. And I don't exactly know why, but I'm leaning in. So um, mm. as, I, as I flip there, um, that's the description of... Um, you know what what it looks like to have those um all of those different like rooted and then cornerstone and fishtown graphics have have those um different spaces and places that are functioning mm. you know positively in an entrepreneurial way but they are also giving opportunity to people who might not otherwise have them and it, it, anyway it's the it's all about the 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 freedom center model and we'll obviously get to that later in our <laughs> conversations but i just wanted to acknowledge that and um, and say to uh, to Jane and Ashley, whoever that is that's texting in right now, hey, we're um, we're praying for you. We're praying for you because God's doing something, and we love yeah. that and we love to hear that. So, um, thank you again. We're talking with Jeff Christofferson. The book is Once You See, um, and yeah, absolutely my uh, my favorite novel of the year. And so, want to encourage you to um, to check it out as well. When we talk um, about this particular topic of presentationalism. This one is actually really, I think, easy for people to um, understand because we all recognize that Sunday morning is insufficient to the living of the faith every day. And even just this past Sunday morning, and I, I'm, I'm a part of a wonderful, wonderful worshiping community of people um, and, and a, a deployed um community of saints, for sure. But I also recognize that for some people, um, what's happening at uh, on Sunday morning is then pretty radically disconnected from what they're experiencing day to day. And not everybody is intimately connected and not everybody is feeling equipped and not everybody is feeling actively uh, discipled. And, and I recognize that. And so 
even as we celebrate really wonderful, healthy churches, we recognize that um, there is this need for a pivot, a shift, a reorientation, a revolution. Um, help us make the shift. Like, what does it practically mean to move from a presentational model to a maybe mobilized model? That's a, you know, that's, 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 you're getting at the heart of it, I think. Um, uh, even, even what we describe as what is a healthy church uh, often relates to the, the little statements that I put beside each one of them. There are things that we, we, um, little statements that we make all the time that we're kind of bragging on it and, and we, we correlate them to health. And, mm. uh, and in many cases, they're, they're the opposite of this, uh, the opposite of health. We, there's um when we have a an idea of what church is we we sort of put it into two categories the church gathered and the church scattered and um and we understand the church gathered pretty well um the church scattered i don't know if that's the best term but we use it often and uh and, and when covid came we realized that we had no idea about the church scattered um, when, when the, when, the, when there was persecution, as we might say it, or when there's a bug or there's something, the church didn't know what to do. People didn't know what to do because when the gathered form was gone, there was nothing for, no, there was nothing left for most. And, um, unless we could get the online thing going, we'd keep gathering in some way. We had no, we had no other option. And, uh, and and the, a better picture, I think, is the church gathered and the church deployed. And when the church gathered is actually functioning, it is actually equipping the church for its deploying. And uh, whether it's deployed just, you know, Monday through Friday or Saturday, or whether it's deployed in a season of persecution, um, it, it really, the, the, it, the, the people of God know what to do because those muscles have been well worked out and um, and they're ready to go. And and the presentational model that we have, you, we come. What time's church? Uh, Ten. Uh, where's your church? Uh, it's over there. Uh, you know, we have all this. Who, who's the pastor of your church? And you know, is, is it a good is it a good church? And we measure it by all the all the things about worship and preaching. When a better model for worship isn't necessarily how we sing or the music that's done or even it, it it's Romans 12 1 and 2 it's is is the are the people of God on the altar as living sacrifices which is our only reasonable uh act of worship when we look up and see the sacrifice that Christ has made for us we see in Romans chapter 12 1 and 2 and so so um presentationalism doesn't equip the body and uh, and so i think that that just me speaks to we need a, a a bigger idea of of what the church is so what's your idea of church as you're listening right now um do you recognize that wow covid did really reveal that we didn't know who we were or what to do once the gathered version of the church was gone um has that been your experience what um how are you answering that question of the church being the church as living sacrifices, responding to the sacrifice of God in Christ for us. Do you feel like you're a part of a functional body of Christ in community? Um, all of those are really good questions and the kinds of questions and conversations we're seeking to provoke here this morning. Jeff Christofferson and I are going to continue this conversation. 
The book is Once You See, the temptation that we're dealing with this morning is the temptation of presentationalism. We'll continue this conversation. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up, they come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And it changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. Some 40 million people have, quote-unquote, left the church just in the United States of America just in the last 25 years. 40 million people who were once church-going people, at least once a month in attendance, um, now describe themselves as going less than once a year. And less than once a year, just for the record, is never. Um, so it's called The Great Dechurching. There's actually a book chronicling it coming out next month. I look forward to talking with uh, the pastors from Orlando who have co-authored it. Um, but today we're talking with Jeff Christofferson about Once You See. And part of why I I bring up reference um, to that conversation, Jeff, is I think that it's undeniable, like, right? People look around and they're like, huh, okay, it was one thing to say that the um, the secular left was leaving the church in the 90s and the early 2000s, but now the secular right has left the church in part because they got out of the rhythm of, quote, going to church during COVID, and they don't really see any reason to start going again. Like, there's not a motivation to, quote, unquote, go back to church because it wasn't it was something they did. It was a calendar item. It was not part and parcel of being equipped for their life of sacrificial living for Christ. Yeah, you're right. And um, and they were not essential to that church functioning, and, and nor was that church seeing them in that way. And so their their absence, you know, is a spot on the pew and and, and a tithe. But um, but like the body of Christ, it is, if it is the body of Christ, it it it, it requires the body and one person cannot grow spiritually cold without lowering the temperature of that whole body one person cannot actually vacate without affecting and uh, and when we can leave and really only thing is that our crowd size is smaller and our our giving is less there's definitely probably a, a, something wrong with with the the major idea that we're trying to accomplish so this theology of the body 
Um, this seems like something about which we are desperately confused at many levels. I mean, we're we're actually like culturally confused about the physical human body. Um, but we are confused about and, and there's confusion. I think if you wanted to just get into a deeply theological debate about the physical body of Christ and uh, and the act of communion, like that is an interesting body theology issue in conversation. Um, this body theology issue is that somehow we imagine that every part is not essential. And right. if you've tried to live, I have had a splinter in my right thumb now for <clears throat> a long enough period of time that I might have to get some help getting it out. But you know when it really irritates me? When I'm peeling boiled eggs. Like, that's when it becomes really apparent to me, because that part of my thumb, I need to take that shell off that egg. That's a weird, it's a weird thing that's happening. But I was like, that is when I become acutely aware of the side of my, of my right thumb. And I don't know in the, in the body theology of the church, if we, we wait until something's wrong to acknowledge that that part of the body is essential and we need to be sure that it's healed, it, it's, it's functioning and it's healthy and it's growing and right. It, it, we wait until yeah. something's wrong. And, and so what you're trying to do is get us on the positive side of that. Let's not wait till something's wrong. Let's, let's acknowledge that every part of the body matters. So how do we mobilize every part of the body? You're right. The, the issue COVID revealed is, is symptomatic of the bigger issue. And um, the uh, is, for, for the biggest part of the church growth era, uh, we thought our job was, you know, catch a fish, put it in a live well, and um, and get another one, put it in a live well, put an, get another one, put it in a live well. And um, and then we, we do all kinds of things to stir that and make it look like there's life there. You know, we are preaching our, our music. We try to create some stirring thing, but it's not really, um, it, it's not really anything that the, the fish really want to be involved in. And, uh, and, and it's not necessarily just the secular left or the secular right that's leaving the church. It's actually, um, people who are born again. People mm -hmm. who have a vibrant faith, or fi vibrant faith at, with Christ, and they're going, but I have no spot, I have no place, and um, and, and there's a, a great sense. I think COVID revealed a great sense of discouragement and disillusionment amongst Christ followers, amongst believers, with this presentationalism model that uh, there's 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 nothing for me to give myself to other than the machinery of the of the church, mm. and uh, and the mission of Christ is so much bigger and so much broader, and uh, and it has has places and it has op opportunities that light the fire of every single person. And um, and so those pages that you reference in the book of of just describing what some of that could look like, um, it's like you mean that could be serving Christ, that could be being a part of a church to to be involved in these kinds of things that don't seem like church at all, and uh, and you know if Jesus was here physically and serving a church, um, I don't think look doing right now, and. Um, I think it would look a lot more like what we see around the world, where in many cases gathering is hard, difficult, and illegal. And um, 
flourishing and and they're they're winning their nations just just through that together uh and i don't know it's just uh we have this very small picture very clean you know um encapsulate much of christ mm. So good. So good. Um, for those of you that are wondering, you know, what, what does it look like? What, um, what is described on these pages, 308 to 310? The, the Freedom Center, um, you know, this is this description in, um, in Once You See about a, um, a multi-story facility, one, one floor of which is dedicated to these um, companies, these for-profit companies that, um, are are designed to make money and then that money is uh, a percentage of their profits go back to fund the freedom center itself and i think it's important to note like they're not quote unquote christian companies um they're not even necessarily all run and operated by christian individuals um the idea here is that you allow um, people to work and you give them a place to work. And if they're hanging out with you every single day and they're overhearing and, and seeing and touching and rubbing up against people who are Christians, um, then maybe they will turn aside to see why the bush is burning and not being consumed, right? Like maybe they will ask the question, what is different about you? Like, why are you different in these ways? Um, and they will be then attracted to Jesus, whom we live to represent. Um, Jeff, as always, thank you so much. The novel is Once You See, Seven Temptations of the Western Church. It is a novel approach to the conversation, um, and we're going to continue to unpack it with Jeff over the next several months as well. You can find Jeff at the National Canadian Baptist Convention or the Church Planting Canada. Um, he's also the co-founder and missiologist at the Church Multiplication Institute, And again, the book is Once You See. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. All right, uh, I'm reading a headline here. The James Webb Space Telescope traces an intense burst of radiation back to the collision of two neutron stars. It then says in the subhead, such events are believed to be the source of the universe's heaviest elements. I want you to pause right there and ask yourself, how do I respond? How do I, how do I hear? How do I process such a headline? Do I become defensive? You know, God created it. You can't, you know, you can't say that this collision is the source of the universe's heaviest elements. God created it. Okay, or could you be non-defensive for just a moment and, um, and acknowledge that behind the collision of those two neutron stars is a creator. God is the source behind what they're pointing to as the source. And if you take a deep breath and you pause long enough to enter into the conversation, you can, you can ask the question, well, What's the there behind what's there? Like, what's what's behind the two neutron stars that you believe collided and created these heavy metals? You get the point. You get the point. More next.
Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.